All right, everybody. Well, welcome to our Revelation eschatology series. If you have a Bible with you, please turn with us to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And Greg, it's good to have you back. It's good to be back. You guys went all over the place. We did. Tell everybody where where you guys went for the last couple weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, we had our our summer family vacation, and um, we went up to the Ark Encounter uh, and the Creation Museum up in Kentucky, northern Kentucky. Um, Highly recommend going there. Um, It will only bolster your faith in the truthfulness of the Word and in, um, you know, what God has taught us there. We went to, I was telling Fred this, we went to the the Air Force Museum at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is probably the largest Air Force Museum in the country. Four huge hangars with a whole history of flight uh, from the very beginning all the way to the very end. They got, you know, the rockets that, um, you know, ICBMs, they've got stuff like that. They've got experimental planes. They've got Air Force Ones. They've got... JFK's. Yes, they had JFK's Air Force One. You can actually walk through it. That's crazy. It was was neat. And there's a lot of planes you can walk through. Um, They actually had the XB-70 Valkyrie. Most of you, maybe you know what that is. It was an experimental... Mach 3 nuclear bomber that never quite made it, um, but it is a phenomenal piece of machinery to look at. And you can walk under it. And I got lots of pictures. And then we went to Kings Island, which is a bigger than Six Flags or about the same size. And then we went to the Columbus Zoo, wow, which was dwarf the Atlanta Zoo. It was. <laughs> it, we did not think it was going to be that big. Wow, but it was fun. Yeah, and, I, w- I want to go to the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. I've never been to those. I would love to take the family some year. We'll see when that can happen. It's worth it, absolutely. All right, uh, Papa Fred, can you open us in prayer? And then we're, we will, uh, we'll be focusing on chapter 6, but I, I will give a few overview uh, moments as well to try to f- explain how this fits into the book more broadly. Thank you, Mark. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I'm, uh, as we enter or look at chapter 6, I'm, I'm reminded of chapter 5, which reveals the throne room of heaven. And... The living, four living creatures and the elders and angels and shouting, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And Father, we can't add anything to that doxology except to uh, rightly exposit your word. And for that, we need your spirit. And we ask you to help us to understand this this book uh, this afternoon as we uh, open the the Bible, Revelation 6, and understand these uh, these seal judgments and, and what they really mean. And and, and how you have orchestrated all of that uh, for your glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So just give me a moment here. I'm going to do this really briefly, just to kind of position us in Revelation, because you can get lost sometimes, uh, see the forest for the trees kind of a thing. Look with me at Revelation. Let's flip back to chapter 1 first. So Revelation chapter 1. And just, just this, the most, most basic outline I can, I can really give. But the, the book begins with John the Apostle, uh, not too far away from where he was spending time in Ephesus when he was serving the church in the first century for apparently a number of decades before his death. He had been sent off to an island off the coast of modern-day Turkey called Patmos, where he was basically in prison. That's what the island was for, for his testimony to Christ. While he is on there on a Sunday, he says on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday, he was worshiping alone because he had no church, and he was worshiping the Lord alone on a Sunday, and he heard a voice. He turns around and he sees the resurrected Jesus. It is a terrifying thing in a sense, so he falls down on his face as one dead. Jesus puts his hand on him, lifts him up, and encourages John, and that's chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, Jesus speaks to John concerning the seven churches in Asia Minor, in Turkey today, uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, and he addresses the, the, the positives and negatives of these seven local churches. And what we learn is amazing, seven churches within a few hundred miles of each other can be in radically different places spiritually. 
You, you can have a really healthy church 30 miles away from a really unhealthy church. And, and Jesus gives certain warnings and encouragements to these seven churches. And the book was originally written to them, but secondarily to all of the churches of God throughout the world. Then you go to chapter 4. Chapter 4 moves away from the four churches, and John gets taken up into heaven in 4.1. He sees a door in heaven open. He comes up, and he sees the throne of God, lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder in verse 5. There are angelic beings in verses 7 and following, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they're all worshiping God in chapter 4. Now now listen real quick. This is very simple. Chapter 4 is the setting. Chapter 5 is the drama where the setting, uh, is, is is the drama where the setting takes place. I said that backwards. Is the, okay. Chapter 4 is the setting where the drama takes place. So chapter 4 is the setting. We are in heaven, angelic creatures worshiping God before the throne. It is this beautiful, awesome display of God's power and His holiness and His otherness from us, and it's awesome. Then chapter 5, we don't change scenes. We're still in the same place. We're in the heavenly throne room of God. The angelic creatures are present, and there's this, there's this, there's this uh, sealed-up scroll with seven seals. We're going to find out this seven-sealed scroll is God's sovereign plan for the rest of human history. This is God's sovereign plan unfolding for the rest of human history leading up to Christ's return. And the question is, who is worthy to unfold God's purposes in history? Who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals? And John looks around and he tries to find an angel or anyone who is worthy and holy and great enough to take the seal and to uh, unfold this scroll. He finds no one. He begins to weep. But then he finds the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb who was slain, who takes the scroll and begins to open these seals. Now, that's the end of chapter 5. The lamb is opening the scroll, unfastening the seals, the seven seals. And chapter 6 picks up right where that left off. So we're still in the heavenly throne room of chapter 4. We're with the lamb who has the scroll in chapter 5. And the lamb begins to open each of these seals. And at each seal as it is open, we get a little bit of a glimpse of the future history to come as an angel appears, and oh, excuse me, as the four horsemen of the apocalypse appears, uh, and we get to see kind of what is coming and what is, what is happening in the future. Very briefly, I'm going to do this very quickly. Chapters, uh, chapter 6 through 8, 5 covers these seven seals with a little interruption in chapter 7. Then chapters 8 through, uh, really chapter 10, or 11, really 8 through 11 covers the seven trumpets. 11, 12, and 13 cover what we've been covering over the last couple of months. And then chapters 14 through 16, you have the seven bowls of God's judgment. Chapter 17 is God's judgment being poured out on the prostitute, which is Babylon or God's enemies. Chapter 18 is again another picture of God pouring out His judgment on His enemies, Babylon or Rome or Rome and beyond. Then chapter 19 has Christ coming in, in great glory with a sword in His mouth. 20 we will talk about in the next few weeks. We're planning, Lord willing, to start the millennium next Sunday. And so it's been about a thousand years before we've gotten to the millennium, but we are finally going to get there. (laughs) So we'll we'll spend several weeks on the millennium. We'll we'll try to explain what's going on there. But we all agree that chapter 20 ends with final judgment. Uh, uh, People are judged according to their deeds, and there's the Lamb's book of life. And then chapters 20 and 21 introduce the whole new creation of the new heavens and the new earth. And you also have the outer darkness or hell, the lake of fire, where those who are cast out of the kingdom are thrown for all of eternity. So that's a very, very bird's eye view brief summary of Revelation. But we're going to zoom in here and narrow in on chapter 6 today in particular. So we're in a heavenly throne room. The Lamb has come. He's conquered by His death. He's taken this scroll that no one else is worthy to open, which is God's plan for history, which includes, which includes judgment and also justice for His people. And that's where we're going to pick up the chapter uh, as we start. Uh, Greg, can you read the first eight verses, and then we'll, we'll pick up from there. Yeah. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, 
and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So Greg, can you start us off with the first few verses? Yeah, I will do my best. So, um, verse, chapter 6, verse 1, the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. When we think about a scroll like this uh, that's like, you know, revealing a divine purpose, um, in ancient times, the one who opened the scroll um, is executing what's in the scroll. Um, and as he executes it, the content in the scroll is revealed. So we want to know well, what's in the scroll. Well, we find out as the Lamb breaks the seals um, and opens this scroll. Um, and Jesus is the one who has the right to do that. And I think it's, it's significant for us to know and remember, he can only do this because of his death and resurrection. Because you look back in chapter 5, when John sees this lion, the tribe of Judah, who's conquered, he sees a lamb as slain. It's standing as slain is literally how you say it which is a clear reference to the fact that Jesus was the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, who paid the penalty for sin by his death and then rose from the dead. Um, and so as the one who has conquered death, he has ascended into the very throne room of God. And you have to appreciate the fact this, this Lamb, this line of the tribe of Judah, I mean, look at verse 7, he went and took the scroll. He went up to the throne of God and took the plan of God, the scroll containing God's plan, and he took it from him, and he's the one who's going to execute God's plan for the rest of history. Okay, so that's the weight of this. Um, Jesus, the, the crucified, resurrected, ascended Jesus, is the one who brings to pass God's plans for the rest of history, um, leading from his death, resurrection, ascension to his second coming and then beyond. And so I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And so this first seal is opened, and one of these four living creatures that we, read, we would have read about if we'd spend time in chapter 4, he has a voice like thunder. And again, we, we don't appreciate that. I mean, you know, we were teaching in here, uh, it was on Thursday night several, several weeks ago, and as we were talking, it was raining and at a few points, at a, at, and it was just one of those neat little things in God's providence. When we'd make a point, there'd be this loud clap of thunder, and you're like, yeah, you believe what we just said, kind of thing. But like, I mean, thunder, it's, it's, when it's loud, like, you don't hear anything else. Everything is overshadowed by it. And so this creature is speaking with a voice like thunder. And so just imagine in your mind's eye and with the ears of your mind, this creature saying, come. And it's like shaking things, like it's overwhelming. And he looked, what, what happens because of this? When he says, come, what comes? It's a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now there's a minority opinion on this um, that we are going to disagree with. Uh, one of our favorite New Testament uh, commentators, theologians, Tom Schreiner, who we quote positively and favorably the majority of the time, he actually takes this minority view and we disagree with him here. Um, he says that this white, this rider on the white horse is a reference to Jesus, okay? And the reason why he says that, you look at, as Mark was talking about chapter 19, when Jesus comes back, he comes back on a white horse to conquer his enemies. And so they see, some see this as a reference to the gospel, because this rider has a crown, so he's got royal authority, he's conquering, they say it's the, the gospel conquering throughout history, not 100% um, convinced of that. Mark, will you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I, I do think that all four horsemen are seen uh, negatively. In other words, these, these are closer to judgments, really, from God on, on the world during human history. And um, I think that they all go together. As we unfold them, we'll explain what each of these horses is representing. There's, there's overlapping between these horses a little bit. But um, yeah, I, I think the white horse here is not a reference to Jesus. I think it is a reference to uh, people who are leading out in warfare 
These are people who, because of their own ego and pride, want to expand their kingdoms for no just reason, and so they are going out conquering and to conquer. They are going out causing warfare in the world that, that God has created, and they are doing things that are unjust with the power that they have on loan from God. Yeah, and I, I want to make sure we mention this too. Um, if you've been here, you know the perspective we're looking at. This is not taking place at some point in the future during just a last seven-year period. This is indicative of the entire church age. This is between the first and second comings of Christ, um, what we're looking at, this rider, this rider on the white horse who's conquering and uh, who came out conquering and to conquer, this is what, if you want to use the, the, the imagery here, he's doing this throughout the entire time between Jesus' first and second comings. So it's not like just a one-time thing at the very end of history. This is what he's doing the whole time between Jesus' first and second coming. And again, as we're going to see, we make the argument, I think it sticks, the end of the, the sixth seal brings about the end of the world and the final judgment. Um, and so chapter 6 is talking about these four uh, seals and these four horsemen are dealing with what God is commanding them to do throughout the history of the church. And another thing we, we want to pay attention to here is you notice with the seal judgments, um, the, the, the fraction of a fourth is given and you get to the trumpets, it's a third. And then there's this thing called the seven thunders, which John, he hears it, he's about to write it. He's like, no, don't write it. And then you get the seven bowls, which are complete. Um, I think the seals and the trump trumpets represent God's judgment on mankind throughout, throughout the history of the world, but not full judgment. It's, it's, it's restrained, it's limited, which is God's grace to us. Um, only a fourth, not all of it. Only a third in the trumpets, not all of it. And so keep that in mind as we think about this. This is what's going on throughout. And you're going to notice if you, if you, you, you look at church history, um, there's periods where this gets really intense and then it kind of breaks off. Periods where it gets really intense and then you kind of get a, a break. Think also, we're going to reference this, Matthew 24, stuff Jesus talked about with like, you know, all these things are like labor pains. Think, ladies, when you've been in labor, um, you know, I've seen my wife go through it. It's not something I don't think I can handle myself. Um, you ladies are, you know, five-star generals and, you know, war heroes for, for what you do. Um, but when the contractions start, the labor pains start, um, it's intense and then it stops. It's intense and then it stops. Um, and it seems like the closer you get, the more frequent it gets and stuff like that. But there's periods of intense pain and then there's a lull. And periods of intense pain and a lull. When you see the, the, the partial nature of these judgments, think that. Because you look back over history, we know this. There's periods of massive war and death and sickness and then it seems like there's a break and then it comes back again and then there's a break and then it comes back again and then there's a break. Like think that kind of thing with these partial judgments. It's not till we get to the bowls that, that uh, we start to see the fullness. It's like nothing's left out. There's no more partial with the bowls. Like that's the, the finishing of the wrath of God on the world. But as we're in chapter six and if we look to the trumpet, same thing, think partial. Like it's not going to be um, famine the entire time because there'd be nobody left. It's not going to be massive bloodshed war the entire time because then there'd be nobody left. It kind of ebbs and flows. There's up and downs. And I'm not going to try to say there's a specific rhythm or cadence we need to look for. But I think the labor pains kind of helps us understand there's ups and downs. There's intensifications and it kind of backs off and then it comes again. That's why, you know, when we live in a period of peace, let's be thankful. But we know it's not going to last. We know it's not going to last. So anyway, sorry, I'm rambling. Y'all go ahead. That's good. This is an allusion to Greg and Mark to uh, Ezekiel 14, which talks about sword, famine, wild beasts, pestilence, as well as Zechariah 6. Uh, there are four chariots there with different colored horses, red horses, black horses, white horses, dappled horses. And, and so this is just an allusion of that. Notice four. Four is used throughout. It's one of those numbers like 12 and 7. Four living creatures, four horses, four corners of the earth, four winds, four angels, four, and then the four beasts of Daniel, all related to the four. So That's helpful. So let's look here at the uh, next uh, horse, horseman, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted, so note the sovereignty of God allowing this, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. 
So when I said that these horsemen overlap to a degree, you can see already overlapping. The first one represents these military leaders, these people going out to war. They're the ones going conquering and to conquer. The ones who have that, kind of like what Putin's doing now. There's always someone doing that kind of thing, going out to conquer and to conquer. But then along with what they're doing, there is massive bloodshed and death that comes from these wars that are created. And so the red horse, representing probably blood red, uh, it's permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So along with these military leaders, you have horrific death accompanying these military triumphs, and you have lots of loss of life, death, uh, all, all kinds of human evil that's, that's wrapped up in this kind of thing, Greg? Yeah, um, and so again, we shouldn't be surprised by war. Like, it's clear in Scripture that, you know, at times God even commanded His people to fight, but war should not be something that, that surprises us. It's some, it should break our hearts. Um, it's one of those, as, as it's been said, it's an evil necessity um, before Jesus comes back. Like we sometimes have to defend our homes violently so to protect our family, sometimes our community, sometimes our nation. Like that's, that's just the nature of it because of human sin and because of what's going on here. Like there are people who want to conquer other people. And when they do that, what happens? You've got, you, want, you can kind of almost say like the, the first horse, the white horse, when he goes to conquer, all these other come along with him. Like these are the results. Like they, they necessarily, you're, when someone wants to conquer, that means there's got to be battle. Let, let me just say, so this should be obvious, but you're getting at this point, which is important. Uh, all warfare involves sin, but not everyone involved in war is sinning. It's <laughs> a very important distinction there. So uh, there wouldn't be no war if there was no sin. There just would be. There would be no one going out to kill each other if there was no sin in the world. But like World War II, to take such an easy good guy, bad guy illustration, I mean, what, what the Nazis were doing, what, what the Third Reich was doing was so obviously evil and wicked and wrong that we, we had to respond. We had to fight back. So although the war was caused by Hitler and all the sin that was going on there, the, the fact that everyone in that war was not sinning, the, the, trying to resist evil in that case was necessary. It was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a necessary thing that had to be done lest uh, he take over and do all that he was planning to do. Yeah. And Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars in Matthew 24. I mean, it's just part of the, uh, his prediction for the future and, and part of the labor pains. Yes. And I, I do want to come back to Matthew 24 in just a moment. So let's look at verse 5. Again, the lamb is still opening the scroll here. When he opened... Verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. This is a little bit more obscure. What seems to be happening here is probably the kind of famine that often accompanied the wars that are being described here, but it probably includes famine more broadly, famine generally in a fallen, sin-cursed world that we're living in. And the idea here is, I believe, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, that basically you have enough to pay for one person's food for one full day's labor for that day. So, so you, you do a full day of labor, you have just enough to provide for your own physical needs at the end of that day. Well, if you're providing for your family, you're in some trouble now, right? Because you don't have enough for five, six, seven people. They have larger families, eight people. You can't provide for everyone a full meal because you're working as hard as you can. And you're not quite having enough money to pay for all the necessities of life. And so you're seeing famine starting to take place uh, here during this uh, black uh, horse that, that arrives. Um, again, famine is not something new in the world. I, I, I just remember when you were talking about famine, I I found a book one day and said, The World at a Thousand. It, really, it was really an interesting read. It was talking about ecologically and that kind of thing. That the, at 1000 uh, AD, that the world regularly went through famines. I mean, it was just, if they had, a, if they had rain, they, crops grew and people ate. If they didn't, there was famine. So this is not something that just, you know, because of Ukraine, just you know, or, or some other war. I mean, this is part of our, our struggle, I guess, to survive in, in the world. So again, it's, a, it's an Old Testament illusion. Ezekiel, all these Old Testament uh, prophets talk about famine, but now it's, now it's gonna be a reality, particularly in the future. Yeah, and you know, it also carries with it like the idea of scarcity. It's, um, you barely have enough to get by but notice, it's, again, it's not a complete thing. 
Um, the majority of people will probably have a very difficult time surviving this. They, they might just eke it out. You think like during the Great Depression, um, you know, folks, folks managed to survive. It wasn't by much, you know, the old phrase by the skin of your teeth kind of thing. But then look, it says, do not harm the oil and the wine. These are more expensive commodities that the rich don't have any trouble getting. And so it's one of those things that the picture is those who have an abundance of wealth will probably be okay here, but everybody else is going to be struggling. Um, and again, we, we see that kind of ebb and flow throughout history. Uh, those who have a lot of wealth never, never seems like they struggle, but for, for those of us who don't enjoy an abundance of riches, like sometimes it's, you know, we do okay. Other times it's like we're barely getting by. And again, let's be thankful that it's not total. It's just, it, you know, again, think of, think of a fourth. Um, it, it's not quite there yet. Okay, let's keep moving here. We've got uh, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him, or followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So again, do you see the overlap between these different horses? They are distinguishable, but there's also a lot of overlap. I mean, you have the sword, you have famine, you have pestilence. Again, all together here, um, a lot of human death and, 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 and evil that's going on. Uh, comments on this horse. I think about the wild beast. Now, why, you know, we don't think about wild beasts unless some neighbor's dog uh, attacks you. And that, that happened, does happen. But I think of Paul writing about his, some of his missionary journeys. He was in danger of robbers and, and wild beasts and, and the weather and, 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 and whatever. And, and so uh, there were wild animals. I mean, I think the Europe firm... Uh, in, the, in the Middle East was pretty much cleared of lions and tigers, but then Samson talks about, you know, killing, t killing lions and that type thing. So wild beasts were a definite threat. I mean, you didn't have an automobile to ride around in. You may, maybe were walking, and, and unless you had a group of people with rods or something like that, that was a danger. So th that was a danger, real danger of death. Uh, the famine goes along with what we've been talking about with uh, scarcity. And anytime you have warfare, there's a potential for famine. They're talking about that now in Ukraine because that was one of the breadbasket countries of Europe until this war. So, go ahead. Okay, let me take you somewhere for a second. So hold your spot here and turn to Matthew 24. I know we talk a lot about Matthew 24 because, like we're talking this week, we, we just see so much the New Testament writers, especially Paul and John, building off what Jesus originally taught. And Jesus, of course, is borrowing from Daniel and other places in the Old Testament. It all sort of goes together. But certainly Jesus is central uh, and the first New Testament person to teach this. Uh, Matthew 24, see if you can... Okay, I, I'm, I'm, a couple things I want to mention here. But one thing I want to mention is this is an argument for why we think... This is controversial. It's probably the most controversial thing we're saying today. You've already said it, Greg. We're arguing for these four horsemen being something that's not just referring to the last seven years of human history, uh, which is what most Southern Baptists probably believe. We're arguing this happens between Christ's first and second coming, and I'm going to give, I'm going to try to defend that view uh, in addition to what Greg said with Matthew 24. So look, look at Matthew 24, and we'll start here at verse 3. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Matthew 24, verse 3, and Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. So he's talking to his disciples, first of all. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, do you already hear the four horsemen a little bit? You've got wars and rumors of wars, right? And Jesus is telling, when does this period of time begin? He's telling who? His disciples standing right in front of him. When you guys see wars and rumors of wars, don't think that I'm coming back just yet. That's, that's the beginning of the birth pangs, but it doesn't mean I'm right around the corner. So just footnote for us today. When we see chaos going on in the world, my goodness, the last two and a half years have been crazy, okay? 
that, that is definitely labor pains. In other words, we are seeing societal breakdown. We're seeing all kinds of evil going on around us and all kinds of things that are happening that are, that are, that are bad. And yet, that is not a guarantee that Jesus is about to come back. He may, be, he may come back in 10 years. He may not come back for another thousand years. We have no way of precisely calculating his return. But we do know that in the inter-advent period, the time between Christ's two advents, his two comings, th these things will mark all of human history. So let's continue to see the, the, the four horsemen appear here a little bit. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be... Famines. Famines and earthquakes in various places, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, do you hear the four horsemen are right here? You've got wars and rumors of wars. That's the first two horses. The first two horses, the white horse and the red horse, are all about human warfare and bloodshed. Second, the third horse is all about what? Famine, right? You're, you're, you don't have enough money to buy all the food you need. That's famine. And then the fourth horse includes pestilence, right? All of that is included in what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus says, you disciples, Peter, James, John, you guys are going to live to see the beginning of these birth pains. You're going to see them right in front of you. Hang with me here. When Jerusalem is destroyed, 40 years after Jesus is speaking, that will be a heightened moment of birth pains. It will be a time of tremendous agony for the Jews in Jerusalem and the, all these abomination of desolation and the Titus coming into to clean house. That will be a, a major birth pain. But is 70 AD when Jesus comes back? No. Even when you see these things, there is a tribulation period that's going to last until the return of Christ that includes what? The four horsemen. Wars, rumors of wars, kingdom against kingdom, human evil and depravity, famine, pestilence, human death, disease, all that is going to mark the entire span until Christ returns. And there will be a heightened labor pain right before the return of Christ that we've been talking about with Antichrist and with the mass persecution of the church. There will be a, a time of intensified tribulation right there before the return of Christ, and then Jesus returns. But the, what we could consider the four horsemen mark the entire period between Christ's first and second coming. Continuing here, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, still speaking to his disciples here in particular, but it applies to all Christians, and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now just pause there. Now think about this. Did his disciples right in front of him reach every nation? No, they reached a number of nations, a good number of places in the Roman Empire and beyond, maybe even India. But did they reach all nations? No, Jesus is clearly talking here about his disciples, but is it stretching beyond the lifetime of his disciples? Yeah, all nations includes, I mean, we haven't even gotten to all nations yet, have we? We're, we're still, I mean, there's, there's thousands of, of unreached people groups with languages that don't have the Bible today. And so we're still in process of getting the gospel to all the nations. But Jesus says he includes all nations, so he's looking forward, verse 10. And I think this, this applies particularly to the time of his return, verse 10. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout what? the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do you see why we're arguing that the four horsemen last for the entire church age? Wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, and death, and disease is going to go from the time of the disciples all the way until the time the gospel reaches the edges of the earth and Jesus comes back in glory. So I, I believe much of Revelation is describing the entire church age, and I think that Jesus also is here emphasizing the entire church age. And let me just skip to one last thing here. He describes the fall of Jerusalem in the verses 15 and following, but then he gets back to his final return. So look with me here at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is his second coming. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, so now we are after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from uh, one end of heaven to the other. So now, now flip back to Revelation 6, because I want to make... Um, 
another connection here. Do you remember the, the last thing Jesus said right before his return? When he comes back, what's going to happen? Cataclysmic stuff, cosmic stuff. Stars falling from heaven, the, the sun being blotted out, the moon being turned to blood. This, this, this cosmic language uh, is going to happen right preceding Christ's immediate return. Well, we'll get to it in a minute, but at the end of Revelation 6, we're going to see that same language, again, indicating that Revelation 6 takes us all the way up to the return of Christ. I'll just give you a little sneak peek here. Look at verse 12. I'm skipping ahead. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. That's what Jesus said would happen when he comes back. Uh, the full moon became like blood. That's what Jesus said would happen when he comes back. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. That's what Jesus said. As the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now pause. This is why we're arguing Revelation 6 takes you to the end of history. This is describing what Jesus said would happen at the very time he comes back in judgment. The earth and the sky can flee away only once. The sun can be blotted out and the, earth, the moon can be taken away only once. This, this is, the sixth and seventh seal take us to the very return of Christ. This is why we're arguing that the seven seals cover all of church history. From the beginning of the time of Jesus and his apostles, all the way up until the final return of Christ when there's cosmic judgment language. And then we believe that when we cover the seven trumpets which come next... We, remember the word, recapitulate. We stop going in chronological order because the seals take us to the end of history and what, then the trumpets take us back again. And we replay history again. Church history gets repeated with the seven trumpets with a different camera angle, this time emphasizing the Exodus plagues as a way of speaking of God's judgments in this world now. And then the seven bowls will again be a recapitulation covering similar territory. But as Greg was pointing out, we believe these bowls are getting closer and closer to the end. And the bowls emphasize a 100% judgment, which we believe is indicating Christ's final return. So the, if you're lost, here's what I mean. Seven seals... I believe, we believe, cover all of church history and end with the final judgment. Earth and sky flee away. Then the seven trumpets go back and start over. They cover all of human history from a different camera angle, and they end also with the end of the world. And then the bowls now are like the camera is zooming in a little bit closer each time to the end. To when the climax. To the, to the climax. They're beating the drums That's now. right. They're beating <laughs> the drums. The, the, the camera zooms in for the seven bowls, and the seven bowls now are not a third of the earth or a fourth of the earth perishing. Okay. It is 100% judgment. So we believe the bowls are really getting us right up to the very return of Christ this time, and then you have the final judgment at that point, and then it goes back again. And we relive the story again for the, for the last chapters of Revelation. So I know that, that may sound like an unusual approach, but this is a, a very common approach among many commentators, and I really think it is biblically uh, persuasive. So Greg, pick us uh, back up here in the text. All right, let's look at verse 9. I want to read verses um, 9 through 11. Uh, we're going to have to hurry here if we want to get through. The, you kind of covered the last part, so we're doing good. Um, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain and listen to why they were slain, for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, and, and listen to this, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, and here's how they're going to be completed, who were to be killed as they themselves were killed. Um, and again, the reason why, and like it's important for us to understand this because there's, there's real life application here. Go back to Matthew 24, okay? I want you to see this. Again, Jesus is, is laying it out. Paul, John, the rest of the New Testament is building upon what Jesus said, okay? Look at Matthew 24 again. Look at verse 9. Uh, we're going to read through verse 14. Um, it says, then they will what? Deliver you up to tribulation and what? Put, Put you, you to death, death and you will be hated by all nations for not my name's sake. That's the disciples and those they disciple and those like this is the entire community of the church started by the disciples until Jesus comes back. This is going to be true of all of us. And then uh, fast forward, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What do we learn about these, these souls under the altar in heaven? Why were they there? Because of what? Verse 9. The word of God and the witness they had borne. 
Same thing Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. You're going to be preaching the gospel to the whole world and the world's going to hate you and going to put you to death. And it's not going to be righteously. It's going to be unrighteously. The world has no good reason to hate Christians for the message we preach to them. But they do. Why? The same way reason we all do when we first hear the gospel because we're sinners and we love our sin and we don't want to be right with God. We want to live our way, do our own thing. And the gospel confronts us at every point with our sin and unconverted people apart from the grace of God are going to hate that. And so what we see then is the heavenly experience of those who give their lives for the gospel here on earth. They are under the altar. They are before God asking God when he's going to judge. But also I want to make another connection here going into what we already talked about this witnessing throughout the whole church age. We looked at Revelation 11. The two witnesses representative of the faithful remnant in the church faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God from the first to the second coming of Christ. What happens? They're hated by the whole world, which is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen to his people as they go out and preach. And so here's the real, real world application. Tribulation is not something, tribulation and suffering for the gospel is not something that a future generation is going to have to go through to reach the world. It's what the church has been going through and is going through up to this day and on to the future until Jesus comes back. It, it's the, the great tribulation. Oh, if, man, man, I'm glad I'm not. You're in it now. Like every bit of opposition to the gospel is fulfilling what Jesus said, what we see in Revelation, the world hating Christ and his people. And so the reason why that matters is, is so many folks, I think if you have the mindset, well, the church isn't going to suffer. God's going to take us out before it really gets bad. We don't know what to do when it actually gets bad. We don't have a category for dealing with actual suffering for the gospel. But if we allow the category to shape how we think that says, no, we're in it now. And, and the opposition that we see here in our own country, opposition a whole lot worse, like in China, North Korea, Iran and other places like Man, they are living this. It's not, there's not some special sci-fi edition that's going to come in the future that's unimaginably worse than what we have now. Instead, it's just a, an increasing intensification, more of the same. And so that should help us in, in everyday life today because, listen, we are the ones who will come before the presence of God as we're faithful unto death. And, and we will be asking God, how long? And then other places in Revelation goes back to this same group. They're the ones in, 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 chapter, um, in chapter 7. The, the great multitude, they're, you know, they're before the throne of God. They're serving him day and night in his temple. They're being shepherded by the lamb. You go forward. Like it says, actually, who are these? They're, they're the ones who conquered the beast and the image and the number of his name. Why? They were faithful unto death. And so keep that category, let that category shape everything about how you think of your life right now, because we're in the tribulation. We're in it now. And if we're in it now, then that means... One, don't be surprised by it. But number two, God has everything you need to be faithful unto death. Like, I think that's the hope because we're like, man, if I had to, I don't know if I could do it if, with what I thought it was going to be then. But guess what? What you face is not going to be any different than what any other Christian has faced from the moment Christians began giving their lives for Jesus. God helped them through it. And guess what? God's going to help you through it too. Oh, that, that's a great word. And I, I think what's interesting is, so I want to make a distinction here because I agree with what Greg just said, but let me, let me make a clarification here. The, we, uh, how do I say this? There is no limit to what any Christian might endure in terms of persecution anywhere in the world today. So like in North Korea, I can't imagine, I have no idea what might be going on to Christians there or what has happened in the past. I mean, when John writes Revelation, all of his fellow disciples had already been murdered for their faith. So it wasn't like there wasn't tribulation at the time. If you look real quick at Revelation 1, just for a second. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 9. Look what John says. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
So John says, I'm in the tribulation right now. That's why I'm in prison. That's why I'm on an island cut off from everyone else. So the idea here is there will be persecution throughout the world, but it will be, it will be up and down in different places. So we've been fortunate in American history to be largely persecution-free in terms of like civil action, although that's starting to happen, starting to change in the last few years. So we may see a change in the next 30 years in terms of what happened, or maybe five years, in terms of what we can experience here in terms of freedom. But Christians throughout all of the world have been persecuted horrifically. More martyrs have been killed for the Christian faith in the last century than in the previous 19 put together according to martyr statistics. So in the last hundred years, there have been more Christian murders, more people murdered as Christians for their faith than the previous 19 centuries put together, if the statistics are correct. So there's tribulation everywhere. What, what makes the tribulation right before Christ returns different is not that its quality is different. Its quantity is different in the sense of it's turned up apparently across the planet. So the, the, the worldwide church is going, to, is going to universally experience a persecution in a degree that it maybe never has before. But, but it doesn't change the quality. It's the same right. kind of persecution that's going on throughout the church age. Papa? I, um, you, you mentioned the time. It's been 2,000 years. And, and the Fox's Book of Martyrs, I, I don't know the number, but uh, I've got a quick example. I stood in the very place on Broad Street in Oxford where two uh, Br uh, British oh, Anglican bishops were burned at the stake. Uh, in 1555, and then followed in five months by uh, Thomas Cramner, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, all killed by Bloody Mary because she wanted to return England to the Catholic Church. And these, these two bishops, this is an amazing statement. Uh, Hugh Latimer, one of the bishops, said to Nicholas Ridley, another one that's being burned, play the man, be of good cheer, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England and as I trust will never be put out. And the reason why he said that is Ridley, poor guy, had green wood. And so the wood was just burning his feet, but nothing else. And his family actually had to come in and shovel in fresh wood to, to complete the execution, to take him out of his misery. And, th and this is a real story, a true story. And then five months later, the Thomas Cramner, who wrote the, the uh, Anglican prayer book, the, uh, the 39 articles and that, thing, uh, that type thing, was executed in the very same spot in Oxford University. So, Isn't it a little, a little cobbled a, X on the, on the, I got on the floor? A, I got a picture for you. Oh, wow. Look at that. There, Papa Fred stood right on the spot, which is, uh, you can Google it too, the little X right there where they were, where they were burned at the stake which is in the middle of the street, right? It's in the middle, the the middle of the street. They, they just carved that little place out because that's where it, it happened. So. And why? Because they preached the gospel. They pre well, I tell you what, uh, for Latimer and Ridley, it was because they denied the presence, the real presence of Christ in the mass. Yeah. Bloody yeah. Mary had come back to the throne and she said, uh-uh, and they refused. Cramner sort of waffled a little bit, but, but because he waffled, when, he, when it came his turn, he stuck his hand in the flames because he said, I recant mm. from my confession. And, and he burned his hand first before he, the rest of his body was consumed. So it's going on. We are almost done. I want to take just the last minute here. Uh, look, look at the tail end of six, and I want to skip ahead to something just for a moment. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? But you see here, Jesus is returning in this verse. They can see the face of the Lamb. The day of his wrath has come. They're trying to hide from him. This is the end of the world. And then who can stand is how the chapter ends. Who can stand? All of chapter 7 is like a gigantic parenthesis saying, let me tell you who can stand. It's the 144,000, which we believe is also a symbolic way of referring to God's universal church, His true church. And, and if you follow here, look at, look at verse 9 of chapter 7. Who can stand in the midst of God's judgment? Verse 9, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, this is the church, that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, same Greek word, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So who can stand? 
God's true people, they have been sealed. They will never fall away. They will not experience God's judgment. The only ones who can stand are God's church, the, the bride of Christ. And then this chapter ends with God's salvation. It, it, you, you can read the last verses on your own time. It's God's salvation for his people. And then let's finish the, the last seal. Chapter 8, verse 1. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We believe this is the final, final conclusion right here. Verse 2, Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar, we just heard about, with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints, the martyred saints we just heard about, on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were, peers of, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And now it's the seven trumpets, right? So what just happened there was, I know I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time. <laughs> what happened there was uh, the saints were praying, the martyred saints were praying for the thousands of years of church history, Lord, please avenge our blood. Please bring justice for our persecutors. And the Lord says, I will, but wait until the full number of martyrs is complete. The full number is complete. History has ended, and now what happens? The angel takes the bowl of all their prayers, flips it upside down, and the incense is poured out. And what happens? God finally answers their prayer for justice. God is going to avenge those who have rejected the gospel and persecuted Christians. God's going to bring justice for those. And that's how the, the seals ends at, the, at chapter 8, verse 5. And now we're going to go back in time. We have the trumpets. And then, then you move on to the next series of thoughts here. Um, if everyone was just judged there, how is it that we have a world full of people again in chapter 8 and 9? Like we've gone back in time and we're repeating. All right, we've gone over time. We've got to wrap this up. Greg, can you close us in yeah, prayer? Absolutely. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Um, and Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to consider what Revelation 6 has to say, uh, Lord, not just about um, a very short time in the future, but about our lives right now, what past 20 centuries um, have been about, and however many more until Jesus comes back. And Lord, I pray that, that we would see that you are sovereign over the ills of this world, whether they be war or famine or pestilence or wild beasts or whatever it may be. God, all of these things are the enacting of your judgments upon the world. Um, Lord, even the opposition that we face as believers, God, is underneath your sovereign hand. And I pray that, that we would take great hope in knowing that there is joy, there is life, there is rest, there is promise of vindication on the other side of death. Lord, um, what a promise you've given us. Amen. Help us, as Revelation says throughout, to love, uh, love not our lives even unto death. Uh, but Lord, may we testify to Jesus and hold fast to the testimony about him, uh, no matter what. And uh, Lord, use that in our own homes, in this church, and in this community to bring more and more people to faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Lord willing, I'm, if I were guessing, it's hard to always know. I think we're going to spend the next three weeks on the millennium. It may be two, but I doubt it. <laughs> it's probably going to be the next three weeks on the millennium. It's a very thorny theological issue. So uh, if you're interested in that, that's what we'll be doing for the next three weeks. And then we'll get to final judgment and new creation after that. Thank you.